Hello, I'm Wayne Park, and welcome to Oikonomics, a podcast about the science of ministry, work, administration, and the summing up of everything. Keep coming back for relevant teachings and talks on these subjects and more. Please enjoy the show. Welcome back to the Oikonomics podcast, where we've been talking about reflections on truly spiritual vocation. Again, I use air quotes there on what is vocation that is truly spiritual. Uh, You'll find out as you listen today. Uh, In the last session, or in the last two episodes of this podcast, we talked about the futility of work and the hope of work. And, and then we turned around in uh, the most recent episode talking about the scope of work. Um, how far does this reach? And I presented the, the vision of Paul in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10, this cosmic recapitulating of everything under Christ. Um, and then I followed it up also with some reflections about the administration of work, the oikonomia or the oikonomica, the science of household management, and how we are administers or administrators of this mystery. And hopefully you understand by now that when I talk about truly spiritual work, I'm talking about something that's a lot bigger than just ministry. And I'm talking about something that encompasses not just pastors and missionaries, but people of all vocations who understand that they are administering this great reconciliation of heaven and earth, of spirit and matter of different tribes and different tr- in different tongues. And, and I spoke uh, at length there about how our ability to cross cultures, our ability and capacity for racial reconciliation, in many ways is the beta test of how good or how well we are administering this great mystery. Today, I'd like to continue talking about truly spiritual vocation, about work, And I'd like to talk along two headings. The first heading is getting the king rich dumb. Getting the king rich dumb. Now, you might say, come again. And you might actually need to look at the liner notes for this podcast. I'm very specific with what I'm saying there. Getting the king rich dumb. And in order to kind of decipher what I'm saying there, you're just going to have to keep listening. So that's the first heading for today. The second heading I'd like to talk about is the economics of the kingdom. And that second heading will follow on the heels of that first heading of, uh, of, of, uh, of getting the king richdom and really a, a synthesis of, of the entire economics of the kingdom of God, if I could posit such a thing. And um, we've been reading, we've been uh, listening to these podcasts alongside studying Tim Keller and Catherine Leary Alsdorf's Every Good Endeavor, which is, uh, I think, one of the, um, probably the leading books on faith and work that you can read today. It's um, supposed to be a popularized and very accessible title, but at the same time, just a brief a brief glance at the end notes, and you'll see that um, uh, that that Tim Keller is is quite widely read, eclectic in his interests, and just really smart. And to that end, I'm not going to attempt to teach Keller's material his way. Rather, I'm going to teach my content, 
my way. And hopefully both my ideas and his um, will synthesize nicely. I should also give credit to Catherine Leary Alsdorf and her contribution, although Keller is the, the primary author of that book. Um, and I, but I don't want to fail to mention um, Catherine Leary Alsdorf's contribution there. She's also someone that I'm working together with on the Theology of Work project um, on one of their boards. Um, but I do understand that Tim Keller is the primary author, and in many ways um, uh, you'll hear my teaching, hopefully engaging with his, but in the end um, uh, I can pretty much endorse most everything he says in this book anyhow when it comes to faith and work. So let me launch right into this first heading of Getting the King Richdom. The foundational assumption, if you've read the Gospels closely, seems to be that the rich cannot get into the kingdom of God. Or alternatively, I might say that the kingdom of God, according to the way Jesus preached it, is not very friendly towards the rich. Now, I would say that this critical perspective towards the wealthy is one that is important to hear. It's one that challenges all of us, especially uh, in the first world that, that most of my listeners live in, and especially in light of something called the preferential option for the poor. Now, the preferential option for the poor is a tenet of Catholic social teaching, and it stems particularly from Latin American liberation theology, uh, coming from the latter part of the 20th century. Uh, those of you that are my students at Fuller Seminary, uh, sooner or later you're going to learn about liberation theology. And I have much to say about this and much I wish I could discuss with all of you about this. Um, but alas, this subject is beyond the bounds of this class. But uh, during my office hours, if you'd like to come by and discuss Liberation theology, um, I'd be happy to host if you bring the coffee. The preferential option for the poor, as it pertains to liberation theology and Catholic social teaching, it, man it, it mandates that we should not just show compassion for the poor. I mean, this is pretty universal uh, in Christian teaching. We all understand that compassion for the poor is something we stand for, but... Um, Preferential option for the poor takes it a step further in saying we have to stand in solidarity with them. In fact, that means preferencing the poor, particularly in matters of public policy. So this is not just a privatistic thing and private charity, but this is a matter of public policy where decisions we make for the benefit of all should actually preference the poor first. Hence, the preferential option for the poor. According to its teachers, um, the poor have the most urgent moral claim on the conscience of the nation or of a nation, and uh, it, it, it in many ways stands as the moral test of any society, how we treat and how we preference our most vulnerable members. So if you want to uh, discern um, the conscience of a society, or the soul, or the spirit. Just look at how we treat the poor. So that's this preferential option for the poor. And I think that this perspective goes well with really the critical perspective that 
that the Gospels appear to be leveling at the wealthy and at the rich. Now, that said, there's another side to this. Um, History documents well uh, about how the early church was propped up, supported, and even protected by wealthy benefactors. Um, Stories of Greek patronesses who were able to not just fund the early church, but were able to house it and to host it. And in many ways, one could argue that the church would not be were it not for the wealthy, uh, not just in the early church, but all throughout the history of the church. Even for Fuller Theological Seminary, I can tell you it's somewhat ironic to me um, when after a full course of liberation theology, our students come out uh, rather prepared to fight the power and to rail against the wealthy and, and, the, and the rich and certain industries. Um, but the irony is, it, is in many ways, our education would not be, Fuller would not exist were it not for um, our wealthy benefactors. And I would even add to that, even more recently, um, during the Reformation, um, John Calvin, John Calvin's uh, religious society, Geneva, in many ways, uh, it could be seen as, a, as a, uh, an early bourgeois, um, up-and-coming, middle-class middle suburban society on the rise, and as a model of modern or a pathway to modern capitalism and even flourishing. Um, Some scholars have recognized this, that throughout the Middle Ages, uh, there was almost a universal and strong condemnation against usury. And what usury was, and we see this in Scripture as well. Um, They were basically preaching Scripture. Scripture would rail against exploitative interest on loans. And so usury was the practice of, you know, giving out a financial loan and then leveling something like 75% interest or, or, or more. And in biblical witness and in tradition, this was an evil thing, and it continues to be an evil thing. Now that said, um, interest on loans is not necessarily a bad thing. Usury is a bad thing. Abuse of interest on loans is a bad thing. And John Calvin was a pioneer in recognizing that the use that recognizing that loans when moderated well in terms of interest could actually be useful in, econo- in economic development of a society. Because you have this infusion of capital as well as this greater sense of responsibility instilled within the citizens who know they have to pay back their loans because the interest is there. Max Weber, uh, the, the great sociologist um, who wrote The, Protest- the, the uh, Spirit of Capitalism and the Protestant Ethic, um, he saw Calvin and Luther as trailblazers for modern capitalism. So to say that the poor are the heroes of the story and the wealthy are, are, are evil and bad and cannot get into the kingdom of heaven. You can't get the rich into the kingdom of heaven. 
you can't get the rich into the kingdom, hint, hint, um, in some ways is a one-dimensional reading. Um, it might be a little bit more nuanced than that. Now, before I say any more about this, there's one passage in Scripture that I need to get us through. I need to get us through a little bit, maybe even do a little bit of hermeneutics, maybe even a little bit of exegesis, because if we do not get through this passage, um, my case won't stand. So let's look at Mark chapter 10, verse 25. Mark chapter 10, verse 25, the famous passage. It is easier, this is Jesus teaching now, his disciples. He says, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Um, Some have posited that this eye of the needle is actually a small gate within the large double gate in the city wall of Jerusalem. Uh, through which pedestrians could enter without opening the large gates as would be necessary for a camel train. So, in other words, some have seen this passage and said, no, no, surely the rich can enter the kingdom, Um, but uh, they will have to stoop down and unload themselves of excess baggage uh, because the eye of the needle is this small gate in in the city wall of Jerusalem. So, yes, the wealthy can enter into the kingdom of God so long as they stoop down. Uh, There's a lot of problems with this interpretation. Some of you may have even heard this interpretation. Uh, The problems with it are are twofold, uh, as as far as I can see. First, the exegesis is just terrible. The earliest mention of any such historical eye of the needle um, goes back to an 11th century commentary. An 11th century, now this is 1,100 years uh, after the fact, after uh, the time of, of this writing, after the earliest witnesses and, uh, of course, the event itself. So there's almost no evidence, no archaeological evidence, for that matter, of any such thing, of any such eye of the needle. It's speculative. It's speculative at best. So from an exegetical standpoint, maybe more from an, from an archaeological, from a historical standpoint, there is uh, likely no eye of the needle. So that the theory falls apart there. And, and secondly, you don't need to know exegesis. You just look at the internal evidence. Um, the passage itself is using hyperbole. From a literary standpoint, I think you're missing the point if you're thinking that this eye of the needle is somehow this the secret pathway that the rich can... No, it's... The, the, the point Jesus is making is it's impossible. It's impossible. You cannot get the king richdom. The king richdom is an untenable reality. The rich do not enter the kingdom. It's impossible. Now, of course, that's why Jesus will follow it up. Well, well first of all, even before that, the disciples will say, then who can be saved? then who can be saved? And they were relatively poor. Now, for them to say it, they understood the message, the point. You don't get camels through needles' eyes. It just doesn't happen. Thankfully, thankfully, hear this. Jesus clarifies two verses later in verse 27 of Mark 10. He says, With people it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Now, for any rich person who has read this passage and understood it rightly, 
they have held on to that verse for dear life. I would say for all of us in the first world, we ought to hold on to this verse for dear life, for it is our only hope that we carry. With people it is impossible, but not with God. For all things, including the king richdom, is possible with God. Further, it's very interesting to me that this same pericope, uh, a pericope is a section or a passage or a unit of scripture. Um, you'll learn this in your exegesis classes, um, but pericopes are, are stories, particularly in the Gospels, that have um, a, they're self-contained almost. Now, this same pericope of the rich young ruler, it also appears in Luke chapter 18. Uh, specifically verses 18 to 27. Luke 18, verses 18 to 27. And what's really fascinating about this particular pericope as it appears in Luke is that at the close, it's almost immediately followed by the story of Zacchaeus, a rich ruler. I mean, would you look at that? You have this seeming indictment of the wealthy and yet this hope that's still held out that God can change the wealthy and God can get the king richdom and following, following that, this actual story of the story of Zacchaeus, which is concluded in, in Luke 19 verse 9 where Jesus actually says, Today salvation has come to this house. So perhaps you can get the king richdom. Perhaps camels do go through needles' eyes. And that's not all. Even the following parables after the Zacchaeus story talks about stewardship and investment. So I think what we're presented with here is that it is possible for the king richdom, of which really all of us by global standards, or let me say most of us listening to this podcast, Likely most of us are living in the first world, and relatively speaking, we are the rich attempting to get into the kingdom of God. I think this hints at a new understanding of economics in the kingdom of God, that it, it can't just be one-sided, that it's just anti-rich, um, if I would generalize and say it's just socialistic, but I think it's more nuanced. And so as I wrap up this first heading, can you get the the king richdom, or can the king richdom. Uh, by now, hopefully, you know what that little wordplay is saying. I think that transitions us now to the second heading, the economics of the kingdom. What then are the economics of the kingdom? I mean, if the kingdom, if the kingdom of God has room for the poor, certainly it does, but it also makes room for the wealthy, then what, what do we make of that? How do we understand the kingdom of God if it's letting the robber barons and the, the uh, multimillionaires in, if it's letting them in too, then wh what, what is the kingdom of God? What are the economics of the kingdom of God? For this, I would like for us to look at Ephesians once again. I know I did some extensive uh, teaching through Ephesians in previous episodes. Um, once again, if you could look at Ephesians chapter 2, 
And I'm going to read a couple of verses here. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Paul is addressing um, Christians, of course, the Christians in Ephesus. And he says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. Now, you might be thinking, what does this have to do with economics? What does this have to do with the rich and the poor? And hang with me here a bit, and you'll hear the connection that I would like to make. And you'll see that that um, I, I think there's some interesting things to talk about here because in many ways, economics is not just about numbers and figures. I would argue that economics is also about human nature, human behavior, human patterns. And if there's anything that this passage that we've just read talks about, it's human nature. So look there with me at verse 1 where Paul is saying uh, to his readers, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. So he's presenting a before and after picture here. Uh, literally, this phrase translates from the Greek, and you being dead, and you being dead, uh, in the Greek, kai humas ontas nekrus. Um, perhaps this is a bit of a stretch here, but that word being, um, ontas, which uh, comes from the, the form eimi in the Greek, uh, is where we get the word ontology from. And um, ontological matters uh, are things I've discussed with my class in the past, um, perhaps Paul alludes to a dead state here or this being, being, this dead being or being in this dead matter state. Uh, probably overdoing that emphasis on ontas there, but I do think that it could be possible that Paul is envisioning a very real state of being, that even though they were alive, they were in this state of death. So, and Paul continues in verse 2, and he says, this was how you formerly walked, formerly walked. And um, it's interesting that he doesn't say this is how you formerly carried yourself or this is how you formerly lived, but specifically the word walked is used there. And I think that there is a historical precedent for this going back uh, to Old Testament uh, literature as well as uh, the, the, the pre-New Testament period where um, in the Israelite and in the Jewish mind, the halakha, the Hebrew word halakha, the way to walk, really was not just about um, how you carried yourself, but it was how you carried yourself morally and ethically. How you walked around um, was important. And so for Paul to carry that over into the Greek here, in which you formerly walked, peripateo, literally how you walked around, how you conducted your life, bespeaks um, not just a physical walking, but actually um, an ethical walking, how one carried their life, how one lived their life. So essentially he's saying, before you formerly walked like the dead. Now there's a pop culture reference coming up here, of course. Um, if he's saying that they walked 
around like the dead, this sounds a lot like something that for some reason we're very fascinated today in popular culture, and that's zombies. I remember years ago when um, uh, this particular popular zombie television show was on Netflix and my children were still very young and they heard strange, scary noises from the TV downstairs and my daughter poked around the corner and she said, Dad, are you watching Walk and Dead? And I said, no, sweetheart, I'm watching Walking Dead. Um, but the way she put that was perfect. Walk and Dead. In many ways, is kind of exactly what Paul is talking about here. You were walk and dead. They were peripateo, carrying themselves around. They were in this dead state. Now, the connection that I'd like to make with work, and particularly with economic life here, is that we are probably more in this state than we realize. Now, mind you, Paul is talking about our former state of, our former way of life, but I think that there's, there's some connection between human nature here and economic commentary. I mean, whether whenever you're listening to this, <clears throat> for my SF, SF students, you're listening to this in the fall, and so we've just wrapped up the World Series, we've, we've got the Super Bowl coming up, uh, the NBA playoffs. You know, whenever I sit through those things, for some reason, I don't know what it is, but I begin salivating and I crave um, very, very big cheeseburgers. I crave pizza. I crave, I mean, what is it that, what is it about watching sports that makes me want that? In many ways, the markets, they know exactly how to, how to cater to our appetites. They know exactly what will make you salivate. I think an argument can be made that for us as the walk and dead, we are people that have just really um, this driving concern, and, and it is for brains. <laughs> the zombies that we are, we are driven by this unmitigated consumption. We are enslaved by consumptive desires, and thus... This, this sort of state of being dead, even as we're alive, I would argue is evidenced by our inability to choose what we want. In that, in that sense, and, and, and if, if, if you want to tweet something I say today and share this podcast, please do. The tweet-worthy statement, I think, would be this. Free markets? Free markets are really not that free. We think that we are free. We think that we live in free markets, but we're actually quite the opposite. We are enslaved um, by good marketing and particularly by consumptive desires, by this unmitigated consumption. We have become the walk and dead. Ever try um, having a conversation with a zombie? A zombie is coming onto you you can hear the biting, the clacking of those teeth. And you say, listen, let me appeal to your higher level sensibilities here, your ethical. It would not stand to reason that you, it would not benefit you to kill me and eat my brains. It just, don't you think it would be bad for your soul? Or don't you think that God would be displeased if you decided to consume? There is nothing there. There is just stomach. 
walking stomach. Is that so far from our current modern capitalist condition? Later on in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 19, Paul will say, having become callous, given over to sensuality for the practice of impurity with greed, he is describing this dead state of callousness, completely given over, greed to sensuality. Listen, I don't think that this is a critique of capitalism as much as really it's an exposition of our former way of life and sin. So I'm not reading into Paul that much. But that said, I think the connection can be made between this economic consumptiveness or consumption that we are really not that free as we think and really this former way of life that Paul is talking about. So what is this new way of life in the kingdom? What are the economics of the kingdom? And here, I would like to turn you to another epistle of Paul, and that is Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 7. Some of you are going to enjoy this, my students in SF 506, because we're going to talk about kenosis again. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, kenosis or kenao, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of humanity. So that phrase emptied himself, kenao in the Greek, from which um, the teaching of kenosis is derived, and I've already talked about that elsewhere. Uh, Real quick, uh, the challenge here is that we're not saying at any point Jesus stopped being God. Um, There's no point where Jesus drained himself of his godness so that he was just this human shell or something like that. In fact, you can see the translators of this passage wrestling with this. Um, The NIV translates this, he made himself nothing. The KJV translates this, made himself of no reputation. The NLT translates this, he gave up his divine privileges. So, (laughs) I mean, that's a wide variety there. Uh, He made himself nothing, no reputation, divine privileges. He emptied himself. I mean, what exactly is being said here? What's being said here is his kenosis. There's this emptying, and you can see the theologians behind the translations wrestling with this, how to communicate this. Now, I'm going to say this. I don't think Paul's intent here was to formulate a theology about God as much as his agenda is to illustrate a posture that we are to emulate. Now, mind you, I think um, we could justify this. I think we could make this really, we don't have to say that at any point Jesus stopped being God. I don't think that's the point. I do think the point is there is a posture here that we can emulate. And it's not just a posture of humility, but particularly as it pertains to this subject of faith and work and, and, and especially economics. I think the posture here that we can emulate is this. It's a posture of self-denial or of reverting this tendency that we have in us towards the will to power. 
You see, everything, not just in society and in economics, in economics or even macroeconomics, um, it's 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 reflective of the human tendency, the human nature. Again, that's why we're reading scripture and not, you know, Milton Friedman or something like that. We're talking about the human nature and the tendency to aggrandize ourselves, to make ourselves bigger, to advance ourselves, to attain more power. And yet here, Jesus empties himself. He, he makes himself, in a sense, see, I'm still struggling with the Trinitarianism here, but Jesus, he makes himself, um, let's say he, he denies his divine privileges. Now try telling that to a wealthy person or someone um, who is struggling with what it means to be a Christian. This denial of this tendency that we have come Monday, once I enter into the office, to once again get back into the power games. Greed is good is the great maxim in the 80s. To advance ourselves, this will to power. Well, Jesus shows us a pathway of kenosis, of self-denial of that. This, this Darwinian impulse that really, um, it, it really pervades everything in nature and in life. Uh, I have to be the, the alpha, or I have to be faster, or I have to rise earlier. Um, I have to get bigger and larger and stronger and faster and quicker. That's the only way I can survive in this world. And yet, this is a hard world. It's, it's not a good world to live in for the weak. Do you hear that? What do we do with this will to power and this Darwinian impulse that exists and pervades nature and all things? What do we do with that in light? What do the weak do with that? How do, how do we survive in a world where only the, the strong survive? How does the gospel live in, in such places and spaces? You see, kenosis is our willingness to challenge such Darwinianism that is out there. It's out there. And arguably, it's within us as well. Kenosis really presents us with this picture of emptying ourselves, even in the midst of all of this consumptive aggrandizement. Eat and get bigger. Eat, eat and get larger. And, and yet this picture of of the opposite of that, of emptying myself, emptying myself. You see, I think what we have here, although not explicit, again, the, 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 the scriptures were not, in these places at least that I've cited, it, it's not explicitly addressing economics, but it's addressing human nature. And economics really in many ways is, is, is understanding value in light of human nature. It's value in light of human nature. That's at least my explanation of it. And in this regard, what we're seeing here in kenosis is the, is the alternative economics of the kingdom, an alternative economics of the kingdom. It flies in the face of the Darwinian world that we live in that says, yes, it's survival of the fittest and the strongest, but the gospel treasures, protects, surrounds, guards, keeps the weak. It even allows us and teaches us this pathway to weakness as true strength. 
This is a different economics. Now, I'm going to conclude with one final objection. I anticipate a question here. Someone might say, does this mean that we should diet, that we should quit eating, quit consuming? In fact, does this mean that we should opt out? Uh, There's a group of people who live in the mountains. I'm not even kidding. Um, I believe they're called Freegans. Freegans. And they, they do not, not only do they not eat processed food or, you know, they, they live off the grid. They don't participate in any aspects of the economy. They try, they try not to, and I don't know how successful they are really, but they do not participate in the economy whatsoever, whether it's the food or the food they eat or living off the grid or, yeah, they, they don't participate in the economy. There are some theologians that would say this is the Christian response. Should the Christian response be that we should all uh, create Christian hippie communes, we should live off the grid, we should um, just farm our food and eat earth-grown, you know, natural things, and we should not use energy, and should we do that? I've, I mean, goodness, let alone, let alone the freegans, there are certain aspects of um, Christian, um, uh, I, think of, I think of certain, you know, certain communes, um, you know, of the Anabap- Anabaptist tradition. Should we join those things? Now, I actually don't think that's the answer because I'm, uh, to put it bluntly, realistic. Realistic. I think uh, the rest of us, I think the answer is this. I think we would do well to learn how to consume rightly. Um, I want to introduce you in closing, real quick, um, to someone named William Kavanaugh. William Kavanaugh writes a brilliant book called Being Consumed. Um, He is a Roman Catholic theologian, and he proposes a sacramental solution that I think is just utterly beautiful. You might hear it, and you'll be like, I don't get it, but just hear me out as I close out this episode. So, what does it mean to consume rightly? in this alternative economics of the kingdom? I'm, no, I'm not saying it, it means to become a freegan or to live off the grid. William Kavanaugh teaches right consumption begins by taking communion. Right consumption begins by taking Eucharist frequently. Because in the Eucharist, in communion, we are not so much consuming as much as we are being consumed. I can't get into the ontology of what he's saying here, to the ontological philosophy, but I would say stick that in your pipe and smoke it. It is good stuff. Because listen to this. What do you have in the communion meal but kenosis itself? And if you are eating kenosis, in a sense, if you're coming up to the communion table, what you're receiving is giving. And what you're filling yourself with is emptying. And what you're taking is sacrifice. Do you hear that? You're filling yourself with emptying. You're taking sacrifice. You're receiving in the meal giving. 
Because you know what's happening there as you're partaking and eating of the communion of the Eucharist, the Eucharistic meal? You know what's happening? You're becoming what you eat. Or, as the saying goes, you are what you eat. Close with this analogy, and maybe you'll get it here. If all I do is consume donuts, cheeseburgers, bad media, television, a lazy, unhealthy lifestyle, then what will I become? I'm eating towards what reality? I'm, I'm, I'm eating towards Homer Simpson. That's what I'm becoming. If you become what you eat, or you are what you eat, then, then because of the economics of consumption, and this, once again, this former state that we lived in, this walk-and-dead state, I become Homer Simpson, if that's how I consume. But if you are consuming, not just theologically, yes, that too, theologically, but also actually physically consuming the Eucharistic wafer and the blood of Christ, is it not transforming you to become kenosis itself, to become sacrificial, to become emptying, and to become giving? Friends, this is sacramental theology at its best, even as it intersects with modern economic theory. I hope you're getting a vision of work that is transforming. And in the next episode, we're going to talk about what this looks like, even for the poor, and how we can work in a way that is more chaotic. Thanks for listening to this podcast. If you'd like to learn more, visit us online at www.oikonomics.com. That's O-I-K-O-N-O-M-I-K-S dot com.